Welcome to the Greenhouse Talent Makers Studio. We're live right now interviewing forward-thinking leaders on every side of the hiring process. Great hiring is not just the result of great recruiters working their magic. It's a company-wide commitment that's vital to building amazing workplaces. And it all starts with our leaders. At Greenhouse, we know that great leaders are talent makers. They understand what it takes to elevate hiring to a strategic capability that pushes the business forward. And it's not easy. That's why we've asked some brilliant folks to join us and share the challenges they've overcome and the lessons that they've learned on the way to aligning their people strategy to their business strategy. So join me and get ready to learn what it means to be a talent maker. She is an HR executive committed to constantly challenging, improving, and innovating within the talent function. Her approach is to meld experience at technology and media startups at various stages of growth with her passions for employee branding, organizational development, social consciousness, and an entrepreneurial spirit to make meaningful impact on the landscape of how work is being done. Welcome, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. To start, um, tell us a little bit about what you love about your work at SeatGeek. Yeah, so um, I think what's great is I really believe in the product, which is always a win. Um, But really, our mission is to help the world enjoy live events. And um, I think a lot about how live events, whether they've been sporting events or concerts or even Broadway and theater, have impacted my life. And um, I really can buy into that mission. But I think for me as a professional, what I love is there is such a huge opportunity to impact change um, and uh, help with the growth of where the company is going. And we have a workforce that is so open to doing things better or doing things at scale, um, figuring out who we're going to be in our next iteration in size and um, and part and time frame of the company. And um, that's all really exciting. And lastly, what I really love about SeatGeek is there is um, a culture of humility there where people just want to come in and do good work. And um, that is in the grand landscape of New York City and in the landscape of technology startups, um, it's super refreshing. That is refreshing. How do you make sure that candidates feel that? And that when they're considering a bunch of different options, that shines through. Yeah, I I don't want to do anything too prescriptive nor something that doesn't feel um, organic or truthful. So I think a lot of that comes basically from our hiring teams, a lot. Um, For me, I was introduced to kind of that personality of humility just by who I met along the process. And I don't know that I could pick people in our staff that I would hesitate to actually represent that um, it, to any candidate. It's so ingrained you don't have to worry about making sure that I it shows up. I think it's who people are. Yeah, it's who people are in the workplace for sure. It's um, when you come into SeatGeek, you know it is about working hard and it, kind of that being a satisfying outcome to the end of the day, you know, so. Thinking about culture and then you men- mentioned scale as well. How do you uh, keep an eye on 
making sure your culture is what's going to see you through to that next phase of scale when you're growing so quickly and see that something different is around the corner? How do you keep it elastic? Yeah, I mean, I think scaling is my sweet spot for throughout my career. It's starting at a company that's just starting to take off and get them to a place where, oh my gosh, suddenly we're 3x, 4x the headcount and what are processes and policies that work for that size. But what I think is the secret sauce is without losing who we are and how we who we are and how we got here and into that, that point. So for me, um, I'm always thinking about not necessarily the culture of the words of a mission statement or core values, which I do think are very important. Um, I really want to know for a company, what are the non-negotiables that will keep your identity that uh, that same way, you know? So um, I always use this example whenever I am at speaking engagements, but I think about Google a lot, who, I mean, truly is probably the one company that ever you talk about scale, it's like, how did Google do this? And, you know, when they were early on, really focusing on product and technology, people were working long hours and they decided we're going to feed our people and we're going to bring in people who will cook meals, hot meals for them um, so that they're taken care of while they're working. And now Google, one of the largest companies today, could very easily say the overhead cost for this is just way too high or we're going to scale this back. And that was one thing that they had always decided, almost like just pinpointed, we're not going to ever change. Um, and no matter what that cost looks like, let's then talk about anything else other than that. And I liken it to, um, if you've seen the movie Sex in the City, um, Sarah Jessica Parker is about to get married and all her girlfriends come over and they go through her closet. And they have these post-its and it's a, a keep or a donate or throw away. And I kind of think through mentally that exercise in companies, in culture. It's like, what do we keep? And then we'll figure out how to keep that as we scale, no matter cost, pressure testing that, whatever. What do we um, like consider that maybe this is something we will do away with? And then what's up for discussion? You know, So that's kind of the approach I take when we're talking about scale. What are the signals for you that, oh, maybe it's time to do that exercise again? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I think um, I, I, I try not to make it about numbers. So I try not to make it about uh, when we hit a certain head count. I think it's when you start seeing the seams pull. So when processes become to feel too cumbersome or your first reaction is to become very prescriptive in how to tell someone to manage or have conversations or when you think more about process versus an organic relationship and conversation. I think that's when you're starting to rely too much on process and policy. And in my mind, that's showing that you have to reevaluate um, what's going to keep your culture fresh as you're moving on to the next level. We're talking a lot about talent makers, which is both the recruiting and hiring side of the equation, as well as the leaders throughout the rest of the business as well. How do they partner with you on that? How do you make sure that either they're bringing you those signals and yeah. like surfacing where, where it might be time or helping reevaluate the culture could be in the next iteration? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about being at Open, um, namely because uh, at almost all the companies I've worked at, we've been greenhouse customers, but I get to see my team that used to work for me at Warby Parker's here, and then my team, current team at Seeky is here. And what is exciting is I feel energized by them. And it's mainly because my background is not in recruiting. I've always managed the recruiting function, but I've never been a recruiter. And I know also my limitations. It's not my strength. So I absolutely value what they bring to the table. I value their point of view. I value what they're hearing about what's happening in the industry. I value their um, the questions of salary, how we close people, how we present our culture, what we want our 
our script to be. Um, I valued their point of view on candidates, on the hiring managing process. So I have such just a huge appreciation for what really healthy and strong recruiting teams can do. So for me, the partnership is almost 100% listening um, or just asking questions because I don't know. And in the flip, sometimes those questions are something that they haven't thought about because it comes kind of more from a people perspective, you know. So, um, but yeah, like very much valuing their voice. And what about the rest of the like other functional business heads, the head of engineering or the head of marketing? How do those folks work together to kind of make sure that the culture is what you want it to be and that the recruiting team has what they have to need to be successful? Yeah, I think that, um, well, I mean, obviously that starts with the hiring process for them, for people in that, um, in those roles. Um, I, I also think there has to be some flexibility and grace allowed to, um, that sometimes your cultural elements and pillars manifest themselves differently in engineering versus in marketing versus in finance, you know? And so I don't think we all have to act the same. We don't have to approach things the same, but we all have to have the same desired outcome. So I think um, having that grace is important and allowing that flexibility. And then also building a lot of trust and communication between the people team, and that includes especially the recruiters and those hiring teams that, hey, I'm going to give you some feedback about the way that you guys have handled um, the assessment conversation. Instead of that feeling like an accusation towards our hiring managers, they actually feel like, okay, this is genuine feedback that's going to help me. Is there a, a time that stands out in one of your experiences where that trust maybe wasn't quite what you needed it to be? Mm-hmm. How did you help those teams get closer? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I will speak specifically to when I entered into SeatGeek, but this is not unique to SeatGeek. So when I came into SeatGeek, they had just kind of hit a period of growth and now needed um, a little bit more rigor and maturity around like processes, policies. But usually tech startups, when they get to a certain place, they've done kind of this plug and play off the shelf method, like what tools are out there, what PEO can I use, oh I've Googled, this is how someone does performance management, this is how we're going to do it. So not that there wasn't trust, but I think the expectation of the people team was deliver. Just deliver on the things that we have heard that we need as a company, performance reviews, that kind of stuff. Coming in, I wanted to say let's challenge the way we do everything. And so what are we trying to get out of performance management? What are we trying to get out of compensation? Instead of me coming in and just building a compensation strategy, what do we want to achieve? That will help inform how we get there. Those conversations weren't being had before that, but I don't have them singularly. I invite my team to have them with leaders, with the leaders' direct reports. So those conversations are happening at all levels, and I think that kind of communication and partnership is what builds that trust. And then builds that muscle of always asking those questions. The next initiative you run, like that will just be there. Yes, and like without even asking, you look over your shoulder to your HR business partner and say your point of view, like, you know, inviting that um, for them to give that point of view in that meeting as well. That's wonderful. Um, You have mentioned some of the brands that you've worked with. Uh, So SeatGeek now for live events, which I will plug. I'm a happy Hamilton ticket buyer from SeatGeek. Love it, love it. To Spotify, Warby Parker. You've worked with a lot of brands that embody connecting people with their passions. Um, How has that shaped the way that you approach your role as a talent maker, as a head of people at at these different brands? Um, I think... 
I think the new breed and generation of talent leaders will actually say this a lot, but my generation of, of talent leaders didn't always call themselves unconventional. There was a very conventional way of doing, at the time, what we called HR, human resources. There wasn't a people team. There wasn't a talent team. It was all under HR, or HR and recruiting was very separate. And I grew up in a very um, corporate environment, mostly in advertising, um, but I really built my chops and just... Uh, experience there but what I knew is that I would love to see things done differently and love to see things done in a way that doesn't impact people capital P large group but people every single individual that I look at, at you know at, on a daily basis so for me what was important was to find companies that um, valued their workforce maybe they didn't know what that meant uh, maybe they didn't know how to express that or show that in policy or process but it was clear that people loved working there they believed in the product they believed in the vision of the company that is something um, that you can't uh, you can't bottle or buy you know so um, finding those kinds of companies, then the way that I sell myself and the way is because number one, I have a true passion for that, for that company. You know, it's like I, I could have been interviewing at many companies, but I knew the moment that I was talking to when I was at Spotify or Warby or Seeky, this is where I, I, I want to be here, you know, and, and then that puts a personal investment on my part of that, now let's make this the best place to work, not necessarily on a list, but when people come to work every day, they feel like, oh, I just really love being here. And um, so that's my approach uh, to how I built out my career. And I think it's the way that I best can um, market and sell myself. And it's uh, the genuine kind of what someone's going to get when they bring me into their company. You mentioned being kind of raised up inside a conventional HR environment and have now set yourself on this path of being a less conventional people leader and at very um, inspiring brands. How did, you, how did you see that you wanted to make that change and how did you feel empowered to choose the unconventional? Yeah, I mean, I take kind of a cheater approach. Like I use conventional tools um, that I've learned early on in my career that a lot of companies, even like your Fortune 500 companies are using. Um, but then I always question the process, um, the tool itself, uh, the validity of the outcome of, of going through that process. And here's an example, like, you know, all companies want to know who are your top performers, um, who is your high potential, and then how do we recognize and reward them. Um, traditionally, in the past, most companies will do like a nine box. It's like you'll look in, you'll rate your people on a scale of vertical performance, um, and the horizontal is potential. And they end up in a quadrant of nine boxes. I mean, I think it's an interesting exercise to do, but I'd always seen after that exercise was done, when we would look at who ends up in all these boxes, people then start calibrating. No, I don't actually think he's my best. He's not in line with these people, other people in the same box I'm going to move. And I think those calibration con con um, conversations are hugely important. But what it, what it brought to light to me is, I don't think this process or tool is um, perfect. So how do we make it better? Or how do we make it better for this company and what this company's objective and what we're trying to do? So um, I've done four boxes. I've done no boxes, but quadrant, but um, uh, verticals and horizontals. I've had no template, but the conversation of performance versus um, potential. Um, I've also said, hey, in this company, we're going to be very transparent about where you land. In this company, it doesn't behoove people to understand where they land, but we'll be transparent on the reward um, side of it. So I think that you always 
it, it helps to start with the foundation, and I, I don't poo-poo how HR has grown up in corporate America. I actually feel like it has made me stronger foundationally, but I am just a naturally curious person anyways, um, and I kind of use that curiosity to feed how we might want to innovate the way the work is being done. I think that's such a powerful tool to recognize that like, no matter how senior you are, you'll have tools in your tool belt, but they aren't one size fits all yeah, and yeah. that really open listening and, yeah. and understanding where you are and how it can fit like never you can never stop doing it yeah no can matter. I actually give you another example yes, that I, I think is, is fairly interesting so and I think it speaks to this so everyone realizes that the annual performance review is probably an outdated broken um, you know system um, people want feedback more than once a year and there's all these kinds of bias and there's recency bias it's administratively taxing for for managers and companies wanted to do something innovative. So I remember reading about Adobe getting rid of performance reviews altogether. They're just like, no performance reviews. And everyone thought, can you believe this? This huge company is getting rid of performance reviews. And I get that people want to innovate to change a broken or outdated system. But there's validity to giving feedback. There just may not be validity in, or what's outdated is how often or not that you give it and the tools we were using. So when I was at Warby, we were, it was right around the time these, these companies were getting rid of the annual feedback and annual performance review. And we were talking about it. We agreed that it was broken. And in discovering what do our employees want, how much feedback do they want, how do they receive feedback, what kind of feedback and at what cadence actually delivers a change in behavior. And we started watching, listening, researching, and ultimately decided we went to a month in review. So we actually did performance reviews every month, employee-driven. They were the ones who filled it out. They talked to their manager. It was a conversation. And I think it's funny because they were originally talking about, let's get rid of the annual review. And everyone assumed that meant get rid of all reviews. And we went totally the opposite direction and gave 12 reviews a year. And it ended up being hugely successful because it got rid of the problems that they were having. And it solved for what was missing, which was this regular feedback and also demystifying feedback. What's really great about that story is it, exemplifies what great products do too, which is listening to their users mm -hmm. and taking user feedback and not assuming that you've like solved a problem from the get-go, but iterating through what the actual person, the actual end user needs to be successful right. with whatever that problem is. And I feel like people, the people function has started to really embrace that idea. That's a great point. Which has been wonderful. Um, you proudly champion your role as a 360-degree HR generalist, uh, which is such a refreshing change when so much of the HR and talent world is pretty specialized. Mm -hmm. um, how did you choose your path and how does that guide the teams that you build as well around you? Yeah, so I, um, when I was growing up in HR, um, spe the specialties like compensation benefits and recruiting, we actually didn't ever get in the same room. We, they were all different departments. I was in the HR department. And um, I always felt like it was like we're not informing each other of, uh, of stuff. I just, there was a huge void of information. And um, I also would see my manager be in six different meetings, all giving the same update, you know. So 
it felt a little bit like this is a waste of time to me. Um, I actually moved into the way, what kind of got me elevated into leadership for HR is um, I got my first, I was running an HR department uh, for a small tech startup. I was their first HR person. It is the career of many people. There's a huge network of the same person in New York right now, you know, because of technology startups. Um, I jumped from that to a business partner role. And I think some people would be like, wait, you were a VP and you went to a business partner, an individual contributor role that doesn't feel like a natural progression. Do people look down on you? Is this a demotion? And all I could remember were those voids of information and my manager being in six meetings and how it would have helped me do my job if I understood what was happening in other parts of the business. And so being a business partner, I actually found a CEO who kind of just wanted to like hear my point of view all the time. Like if I decide to open an office in Atlanta, what do you think are going to be my pitfalls? You know, and like just having these kind of like what if conversations. And I, you know, his name is Greg Coleman. He's a fantastic leader in the New York tech space. But I attribute his openness to wanting to be the partner to a business partner that transformed my career. Because I started talking about the business, fiduciary responsibilities, not just headcount, but really um, org impact, and then how that impacts our client relationships. And I started understanding truthfully what every role does and the impact it has on our consumer and our bottom line. And it was super satisfying. And it also opened up the possibility of, all right, then how do we get people in our four walls to impact all of that, that grand scheme of what the business is trying to do. So from there, my that's kind of really fueled my confidence to challenge at more senior levels how we work, you know, and how the infrastructure we're putting in place for our staff, how we hire, how we fire, um, you know, with respect. And we want our leaving employees to be our greatest PR, you know, just like the concepts that... We know in theory, but putting word and voice to it and action to it um, changes the way a company works internally. So, um, yeah, so generalist who wanted more information to business partner and having that information opened up to me blowing my mind. And how it helps me with my teams today is I have absolute trust in my teams because they're the expert. I am not an expert in comp and ben. I'm not an expert in recruiting. I need their voices. And I think that if you ask my teams, they'll say, well, you you know, you put a lot of information on us that a lot of times some of these um, teams have never had exposure to, and they're not sure yet how to process it. I love that moment when it connects, and they're like, ah, this is how it's going to help me in my, my job day to day. And um, I think that I feel like I... I want to build teams that are definitely like vertically stupendous and excellent, but I also want to build and raise up all the next chief chief people officers for the next companies. I was just thinking that you are coaching and training the people that will be the chief people officers in the next five to 10 years. And so what, like, what is the checklist for making sure you're setting them up for success? It sounds like certainly some, um, business exposure. Uh Yep. So not just a yes or no, when it comes to finances, it's impact. I think that's very important. So understanding impact to budget, um, understanding how to pick and choose your battles. Like what are the things that are like, yes, I'm going to definitely dig my heels in on this. And this one can be something that we'll let go. Prioritization is huge. Um, communicating with empathy, 
understanding not just, you know, a lot of junior HR people will say, uh, we have to do this because it's the law or so that we don't get in trouble. When you get more senior levels of like business partnering and leadership in, in the people space, it's about just empathetic communication. How do you feel about this sitting behind your desk every day? Um, and I think the other thing is understanding that your vertical has an impact in the grand scheme of things, but you're not limited to your vertical. So I use all of my people leads who lead all the t um, verticals, but we may share a project. Hey, I need your minds to help me think about how we want to approach performance management moving forward. So I like to give them kind of some shared projects to dig their heels into and, and, and yeah, and meaty stuff. Absolutely. You've had the opportunity to participate in so many different types of hiring cultures now, participate in and shape. What has been the kind of one common thread that you would want to, that you think that all candidates having gone through any of those processes would be able to say confidently about the process? And then what's been different? How have you learned how to have a flexible hiring culture depending on which of those brands you're working for? When you come from a culture forward or culture first company um, that I know we, we're starting to move away from this term, but the culture fit is so important. And measuring that and assessing, assessing that has, is the biggest challenge, right? It's always like, oh, I got this feeling about this person. And we know that that actually triggers all kinds of bias. And I think what is the interesting, when we've done it well, it's when we haven't worried about or thought about when a candidate comes in and fits but when a candidate comes in and flourishes. So the difference is someone, I can think about, this This is my core values at SeatGeek, and someone exemplifies that in the interview. Or I could say, you know what, this person actually had a couple tr troubling experiences with a leader who didn't show that. If they came in here and a leader showed that value, would they flourish? You know, So it's almost like not being like taking the opposite way, but trying to assess how when once they're working in the an environment what's going to bring out the best in someone and what is that best that they have that can be brought out so it, it feels a little nebulous the way I'm saying it now but I, I just think I I shy away now from that whole Jerry Maguire you complete me <laughs> I don't like that attitude it's like hey we're gonna actually make you better and you're gonna kill it here you know kind of like that confidence in hiring and I think culture forward, culture first companies, if they can embrace taking chances on people that they know that their culture is going to positively impact, the reward can be phenomenal. It, it almost sounds like part of it's moving from just like assessing for fit and also selling your culture yeah. and making sure that both parties yeah. leave the interview process pumped up on the partnership together and yeah. like working together for the next yeah, couple of years. Yeah, and what's crucial there is the transparency. It's crucial that I'm not trying to sell this is what you're going to get and it's going to be perfect. It is, here are some of the challenges that you'll face and here's what we have seen have been the rewards of those challenges. Are you the type of person that will feel rewarded from that challenge? Or is that literally the kind of challenge that triggers all your buttons and you're like, I can't work there? And that is an honest and okay conversation to have. It's totally fine. I prefer to have those, you know? It's like, so I can be very honest and say, for a lot of technology startups, we have very little structure. We move very quickly. Sometimes there's a lot of autonomy, which is great, but there's very little accountability. When your hair is on fire, how do you typically feel when you go home every day? That is something that's important to me because more important than, hey, you know, 
tell me any, a time where you exemplified this core value. What is one of the lessons you've learned in terms of like ramping into a new culture and preparing to lead a new culture as you've moved? How have you learned to do that well? And what's been maybe a, a mistake you've made along the way? Yeah, I think for me, I'm learning this. This is kind of my life lesson across the board, but um, I, I just don't want to hold anything too precious. Like I just, nothing is like, nothing is so horrific a mistake is never so horrific that I should go home and beat myself up over it. And nothing is so important that I like really make myself feel like I am, I can't do this or a failure. That sounds a little bit maybe too Pollyanna, but I think I'm just um, becoming much more flexible and much less rigid. I don't, I have a, an aversion and I'm allergic to things that are too prescriptive, too, in the tech world, we call it corporate, you know, like it, like it's a bad word, but too overly processed. And when I come into companies and I see a 50-point process, I'm like, oh, how do we make this five points? You know, how do we then train people to work within a, a more flexible um, environment? So I think what I, I've come from very um, companies with very dynamic cultures, and it is hard not to then want to replicate the best of that in the next the next step and so in that whole conversation of what I've learned to be more flexible is it's okay if a company's people are complaining about pay it's all right just because you came from somewhere where you took care of all the pay you know and you got them in a good place doesn't mean that you can either that replica a plug and play is going to make everything all right it, it doesn't mean that you can't fix this but it also doesn't mean that you don't have to sit down and hear what they're saying and take the time and do the work and, and, and strategically come up with a plan. So I guess my biggest learning is um, no job is plug and play. Show myself some grace. Um, it's just a job. And at the end of the day, I want to feel proud of the work that I put out. And a lot of that is on me and on uh, more so on me than on anyone else. One of the things you've talked about observing the importance of his company rituals. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. And in this same conversation, how do you protect what already exists versus recognizing how to let something evolve? Yeah, and I think this is a little bit different than what people call culture. Um, it's more akin to things that companies consider traditions. Um, I I spoke about this last year at a, at a, um, a conference, and it, it was interesting because the topic was given to me. So I wasn't, it didn't necessarily resonate right away, and I wasn't connected to it. But as I started um, flipping through my Instagram, I realized that I have life rituals. When I go home, my mom makes dinner for our entire family. We eat at the dinner table, you know, and... Um, we do a certain thing every year for Christmas. We go over to my aunt's house and there's 50 of us there and we do white elephant, you know, and there are rituals in my life. My friends and I meet for bottomless brunch, you know, and there are things that I have grown to feel attached to that give me a comfort level, but then also that I have kind of now feel as a part of my identity and um, have also informed and helped develop who I am. So for companies, I think rituals, there, it doesn't have to be something hugely life-changing. It could be as small as a balloon on the back of your chair when you start or on your birthday or anniversary. 
But what it does provide is you feel that person feels they're a part of something. So that means every other person has gotten that. I'm a part of this ritual. I haven't been overlooked. So I'm, I've been seen. Um, and that there is a level of commitment and care to keep this going. Um, and like I said, it can be very small doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but it will have huge impact that's maybe not measurable, but it is that feel-good factor or that feeling of belonging that um, I think that we don't talk about enough. We're about to wrap up. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we chat through? Any story that... I just, I think one of the things that um, has also just changed later in my career, despite the fact that it has been a conversation in the industry for a long time, is um, obviously the concept of diversity and inclusion and belonging. And I just wanted to throw that out because we didn't really touch on it. But, um, you know, I have come from a very traditional HR background. There have, in large companies, there are very typically a head of diversity and inclusion. And it became, for many years in my career, something of not my problem, I don't identify with this, despite the fact that I'm a woman, I'm a person of color. Um, and um, so I just, I find what's interesting and exciting about what's happening in the workplace today are just the conversations that are being had. Yes, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. There's a lot of frustration. People are tired of companies not being the forerunner of change. And quite frankly, a lot of the change that's happening today with pay practices and paid family leave and all that stuff, it's actually governments that are forcing change, not companies who are ballsy enough to step out. And in a lot of the things like Me Too movement, it was um, employees who came forward because they were not getting the support from their HR departments. Um, Susan Fowler at Uber, she had to go public because HR didn't stand with her. So I think what is an interesting and a really fascinating and wonderful conversation to have is um, to be talking about, number one, how we should have done better. Number two, how we can do better. And number three, how we don't have to be the drivers of this change, but we for sure have to be actively involved in the conversation. And um, we don't have to be afraid of the emotion attached to it. We don't have to be afraid of stepping on people's toes, which I hear that all the time. It is, um, it's just important that we are talking. And um, so I get very excited about that here at Open. There have been so many um, sessions about it, which have just been um, really wonderful. I learn something new every time we have the conversation. So. Um, and that has happened really later on in my career. So I guess if anything, a learning for me is um, you're going to continue to learn. You've never learned it all, and the world is changing, so our roles in HR are also changing. If it's not changing, then you're not doing it right. You're doing it more for process than for people. Um, yeah, so I'll just uh, I'll leave it with that. It's a wonderful call to action to remain like brave as a function and know that we need to take on new work but doing it um, with a very open mind and learning attitude as well. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, we will talk soon in the Telemaker studio. Can't wait. joining us in the Talent Makers Studio. Tune in to our next episode as we explore stories of how great leaders and managers at companies like VaynerMedia, TalkDesk, Alphabet, and Bevy are transforming business by changing their approach to hiring. You can also learn more by visiting greenhouse.io backslash talentmakers. Talent Makers.